Well, good to see all of you here, 945. Thank you guys for being here. Uh, there's an old story some of you may have heard before about a monastery where there was a very strict rule of vow of silence. Once a year, only one monk could say one sentence. So the first year, one monk at breakfast said, I hate this oatmeal. That was his one sentence, right? So then a, a year of silence, and then the next year, another monk said, well, I like oatmeal. And then there was another year of silence. And then the third year, a third monk said, I am sick and tired of this constant bickering. <laughs> Which brings me to the election. Lots of bickering, right? Only sadly, they are not limited to one sentence a year. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have heard some version of the following? Someone say some version of the following. This is the weirdest or worst or whatever election of my life. How many of you have heard someone say that? Mm -hmm. How many of you have said that? Uh -huh. How many of you say that every single day? <laughs> this election has a lot of people worried, a lot of people angry, older folks wondering what is happening to our country, younger folks wondering what kind of future am I stepping into? And for those of you who are in middle school or high school, even if you're not voting, we actually, we need your ideas in this because this affects your future longer than it's going to affect the rest of us. And there's just a lot of fear about what's going to happen, no matter who wins, regardless of who wins. Well, last week, we talked about racial reconciliation. And if you weren't here for that, please watch that sermon online, because that's an important topic. So this week is kind of part two of that, politics. So we're just filling my inbox with controversial topics these weeks. How do we, as followers of Jesus, find hope in this very divisive election, and more importantly, how do we spread it to others to heal our land? Now, it's interesting that Jesus never, ever took a political stand on the issues of his day, even when he was pressured to do so. And the irony is that now our faith is highly politicized, right? I mean, we hear a lot about the religious right, but there's also a religious left. It sort of reminds me of a saying I heard growing up in eastern Washington. Mixing religion and politics is like mixing ice cream and manure. Doesn't do much to the manure, but it sure wrecks the ice cream. And it can dis uh, we distort our faith if we politicize it. That said, neither was Jesus just politically complacent. Oh, well, whatever happens. No, no, no. Actually, he had a third way. Jesus brings a revolutionary revolution, more revolutionary than any revolution ever has been. And he called that the kingdom of God, which we tend to spiritualize. Well, that means that Jesus died so I could be forgiven and go to heaven and be with Uncle Bob, right? But Jesus says, no, no, it's that, but much more. Jesus says, this was what Jesus thought his mission was. He says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. See, kingdom of God is about real world stuff, real world healing of injustice here and now. When Jesus said, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, he meant that literally, that was not a metaphor. And it's not liberal or conservative, it's just this third way all together. And that's kind of what we see in the text that we read today from the Old Testament. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's kind of a famous verse, you know, it shows up on social media and on billboards along I-5, preachers love to quote it, but I'm not sure it means what we sometimes think 
that it means. So let me unpack this kind of, this, this one verse here, the kind of phrase at a time, just to understand it better. And here's the bottom line, guys. It's going to be okay. It's really going to be okay. It says, when I sh- the, the, the context is that King Solomon has just built the temple and then God appears to him in a dream and says, when I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain or command locusts to devour the land, now, right there, that's a little problematic, right? Like, why would God cause these bad things? And I've talked a lot in other sermons about that, but just briefly, the Israelites thought that everything was under God's control, whether he caused it or just allowed it to happen. We might say that God let this happen and will use it for good. But another way to view this verse is basically God saying, when your country seems to be coming apart at the seams, when it seems to be just going out of control, Here's how you find hope. If my people who are called by my name, I want to stop right there. In context, that means the Israelites, but the New Testament says that we Christians are the new Israel and we are literally called by his name, right? Christian means kind of little Christ. And what's interesting to me about that is whenever I see this verse on billboards or on social media, usually it is used to make an argument for like putting prayer back in public schools or Ten Commandments in public courthouses or something like that. But that is not what it says. It doesn't say if those people who oppose prayer in school would just get their act together. It doesn't say that. It says you there, you who are called by my name, you who are posting this verse on Facebook out of context. I'm talking to you. Right, like stop pointing fingers at them. This is about you. And if y'all would just do what? Humble themselves. That doesn't mean we humiliate ourselves, but it means we do acknowledge that we are not Lord, Jesus is, and that we don't have all the answers. So humility means, for instance, we reject political simplicity, that, that you know, one party better represents Jesus than the other. Now, Scripture tells me that Jesus would have plenty to praise and plenty to criticize in liberal and conservative and even moderate, you know, just praise and critique on, on all of those. Humility means we honor one another even when we disagree. Because if we don't, we wound someone who may sit right next to you in church, right? And who, like you, wants the best for this country. They just think there's a different way to get there than you. Humility means we're willing to learn from each other because we're not always right. One of the classes I taught at Stanford was how to construct an argument. And I would always tell my students, your opponent always has at least one or more good points. And until you've dealt with that point, either by refuting it completely, which is usually hard to do, or moderating your arguments to account for the complexities of the issues, if you don't do that, C is as good as it's going to get in Dr. Dudley's class for you. Okay, no more terrifying words to a Stanford student than that, right? Like, see, that's a consonant. I've always gotten vowels, right? <laughs> Humility also means we don't stereotype each other, okay? No, conservatives are not a bunch of greedy people who hate the poor. Maybe some, but most deeply care about the poor. In fact, data shows they give more to charity, not because they're more compassionate, but because they believe the private sector is more effective. And liberals are not a bunch of unpatriotic, impractical zealots. Most love this country very much, and they have ideas they believe, often with good reason, will actually work. And if we listen to the opposition for their good points, we would get smarter policies and less toxicity. Like one of the problems right now is that, is that liberals and conservatives just refuse to admit that the other side just might have one or, good, one or two good ideas. So they won't work together. 
Humility means I don't have all the answers. So I'm going to listen humbly. And if we don't humble ourselves, right, life has a tendency of humbling us for us, right? There's a man named Chan Gailey, was a football coach at Troy State, and he tells a story of a winning season that sent them to the championship. And one day his assistant said to him, Sports Illustrated is on the phone for you. So this coach, he was really excited, Sports Illustrated, this is the big time, right? And he was thinking up these quotes to talk about their great winning season. Well, when he picked up the phone, the person said, is this Chan Gailey? And he said, yes. And the person said, this is Sports Illustrated and your subscription is running out. Would you like to renew? Humbling, right? If we don't do it, life will do it for us. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And I'll say more about prayer in a minute, but when we connect with God, it reminds us that he is in control, not any politician. And so we choose prayer over despair. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say seek the king's face. It doesn't say seek Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. God, seek God. See, if we're anxious about the election, it's because we've put our hope in a political solution, not in Jesus. And the Bible calls that idolatry. Man, politics is important. We should care. We should be engaged. But it is not, Lord. And I am dismayed at how many Christians, liberal and conservative, bend Scripture to fit their politics rather than bending their politics to fit Scripture. And if right now, in your mind, you're going, yeah, that other side, they really do that bad. They're terrible. No. I'm talking to you. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, change your values, stop making politics an idol, change your behaviors, then what? I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So what is God's plan for healing our land? Elect the right people? Never been his plan. His plan is you. His plan is me. And there is no plan B. We are his healing agents. His plan is to transform us and make us healing agents in his world. Now, sometimes when I say this, I, sometimes Christians to me will respond, well, what? Are Christians just supposed to lay down and take it, not fight for our values and our ideas? No, I'm saying let's try something that actually works. Okay, for 40 years, for 40 years, we've thought if we just elect the right people and get the right laws, this or that, then, 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 how's that working for us? All we've done is tick people off. It is a failed strategy. The data is in. Why don't we try Jesus' way? And Jesus did not give his jo the job of healing this world to a government. He gave it to his church. And for those of you who think this doesn't actually work in the real world, history proves you wrong. And I've, I've said this many times before, so I'm just going to be super brief. But the early Christians transformed the Roman Empire not by taking over the Roman Senate, but because in a culture that didn't value women, they refused to, do, to practice female infanticide like everyone else did. In a culture where men were expected to have several mistresses, but women punished if they had a lover, Christians insisted the deepest, happiest marriages came through monogamy. And women flocked to that because they felt valued, but so did men because they found that was actually a better way to live. Christians showed radical care for the poor. In fact, one Roman named Julian was so upset about the growth of Christianity. This is what he said. He said, it's because they don't just take care of their own poor. They take care of everyone's poor. And these Christians mix the races because they have this idea that everyone is equal before God. 
See, Jesus will turn you into a radical social change agent. Now, is it liberal or conservative? Well, it's kind of both, right? Or neither, right? I mean, the, the sexual ethics, that sounds kind of conservative, but, 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 but the, the mixing of the races and the caring for the poor, that sounds kind of liberal. And because Christians lived this different way, people were attracted to the Jesus way of life. And as more joined, then pretty soon fewer and fewer people went to gladiator games and hospitals started and relief for the poor and slavery and human sacrifice disappeared and the culture changed and all of that continued for centuries until Charlemagne decided that the best way to convert people was at the point of the sword and the courageous love of the martyrs turned into a fearful, persecuting and politicized church. See, Christianity always, 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 without exception, always thrives best when we are not in power, and paradoxically, we have more influence on the culture when we're on the margins. This is Jesus' revolution, and it is more revolutionary than any revolution ever. Because see, every other revolution, all that does is just switch who's in power. But Jesus says, I'm not going to do a revolution by taking power from my opponents. I'm going to do it by loving them and changing their hearts. And you aren't really radical until you're on this revolution. And it can't be stopped. That's our hope. It cannot be stopped. They killed Jesus to stop the movement. He just rose again. Whenever they killed Christians for their faith, conversions to Christianity skyrocketed. You can't stop it. So for those of us who are older, let's not look back to some supposed good old days in our country, but let's look ahead and let's look at Jesus who is making all things new. And for those of you who are in middle school or high school or young adults, know this. The world was changed by Jesus' first followers, many of whom, including the disciples, were teenagers and young adults. If our hope is in a political solution, we are always going to be discouraged and depressed. So Jesus says, put your hope in me and my making new of all things, because it really does work and it cannot be stopped. When I was in the West Bank last November, I met a Palestinian Christian. There are Palestinian Christians. And I told you a bit of his story in January. I want to tell you his whole story. He saw Israelis as brutal oppressors, and he hated them, hated them. And then one day he was reading in the Bible where Jesus says to love your enemy, and he said out loud, oh, I wish you hadn't said that, Jesus. But as a Christian, he had to take it seriously which I so respect because so many American Christians, we just ignore parts of the Bible that don't fit our politics. So he started praying, Jesus, help me love Israelis. Well, a little while later, he was invited by some Israelis to a Never Forget program at Auschwitz, and he didn't want to go, but then he had this thought, oh, wait, I've been praying that Jesus would help me love, oh, shoot. Why'd you answer that prayer, God? So he went and heard Jewish teachers say, people have always tried to kill us. And he realized that the Israeli narrative, with good reason, is fear. Because for millennia, Egypt, Assyria, all the way down to the Holocaust, people have tried to kill the Jews. And he felt something he had never felt for Israelis in his life, compassion. So he started a program called Healing Hate, where Israelis and Palestinians talk through their experiences with each other, hear the fears of the Israelis who just want to be safe, and hear the hurts of Palestinians who have lost land that has been in their family for generations. And how for the actions of a few terrorists, all Palestinians are treated as second-class citizens in Israel. And after many, many of these conversations, they start to understand each other. And then the last thing they do is they go to the desert and put an Israeli and a Palestinian on a camel together for three days. And this is the part I told you back in January. And after three days on a camel together... 
they go from enemies to being friends because it equalizes power. I mean, nobody looks good on a camel, right? It's hard to feel superior on a camel. And then working together like that breaks down all the stereotypes. So they go from being enemies to friends. Now, when I told you this part in January, there were, back then there were a lot of presidential candidates, and, and I joked that maybe we should put them all on a camel and send them into the desert. You all applauded. By now, some of you are probably thinking, oh, why don't we just elect the camel? <laughs> Jesus transformed this man, and now he is bringing peace to the Middle East one camel at a time. It has political implications, but it is not politicized. It's a third way. And you don't have to be on a camel to do this, right? The healing part was actually the conversations they have. You can have these conversations in your gym, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your office. Listen to understand. Bring political healing by just saying, tell me more. How'd you come to that position? Why do you see it that way? Right? Not with an edge in your voice, but just curious. Like, tell me more. We don't talk politics because we're afraid it's going to go into a fight. You know what? That is 100% within your control. Just don't let it go to a fight by simply listening to understand, because that brings healing. Okay, practically speaking, what are some practical steps, just practical things we can do in the next two weeks to find hope and spread hope? Okay, a couple of things. First, all of us, myself included, honestly ask ourselves this question, has Jesus affected my politics? We don't bend our faith to fit our politics, we bend our politics to fit our faith. And the Jesus of Scripture will change your politics. Which direction? Right? Every direction. All over the place. If Jesus has not irritated you politically recently, whatever side you're on, if Jesus has not recently irritated you politically, you are not following the Jesus of Scripture. You're following yourself and slapping his name on it. Has Jesus changed my politics? Second, pray. We've put prayer cards in the bulletin to take home to give you some ideas of how to pray for our country. And on Wednesday, we're calling for a day of prayer. Just wherever you are throughout the day, frequently pray for our country. And then we'd encourage you Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, to come here for an evening of prayer. Ask God to revive faith, revive people out of poverty, revive families. And ask God to pray for yourself for two things. God, show me what you want to teach me, and then show me how I can be part of healing. Third, pour water on the fire, not gasoline. This has been a very divisive election. And God's people are called to bring peace where there's division and discord. So we can disagree on how to fix the problems in our country, but we can do so in a way that honors each other and listens to each other and respects each other, both in person and especially on social media, which can be helpful, but also social media can be super divisive, right? And, by the way, minimally effective. I mean, show of hands, how many of you have read some post and gone, oh my goodness, I've been wrong all these years, I'm switching my politics? Like, how now? That just doesn't ever happen, right? Be respectful. Bring healing, not divisiveness. A few weeks ago, this picture here went viral. George Bush, Michelle Obama at the African American History Museum. Now, is it just me, or is there something kind of healing about that? Democrat, Republican, black, white, male, female. Spread healing. Spread peace. We can disagree, but disagree respectfully. 
And also, let's just let's help tone down the apocalyptic rhetoric, right? Oh my goodness, it's all coming undone. This is it. This is the end. It's never been this bad before. Oh, yes, it has. I mean, as you know from history, or if you're familiar with Hamilton, best musical ever, okay? Like best work of art in probably 50 years. Talk about, we're talking about it on literary night. Well, you know that Aaron Burr killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. Okay, let that sink in. The former treasury secretary was killed by the sitting vice president. And the vice president wasn't even impeached for it. And Thomas Jefferson, who was president, was glad to have Hamilton gone. Okay, that's worse than now. Okay, right? I mean, guys, it's going to be okay. The founders built this system strong, and they built it deep. It is the oldest working constitution in the world for a good reason. We can withstand a lot. Pour water on the fire, not gasoline. Fourth, what is your role in God's revival of all things? If early Christians transformed the Roman Empire by caring for the poor and reconciling races, then what's our role? Our country needs us to bring healing. But more than that, you'll feel better if you're part of the solution. You will not feel like you're just a victim of the times. There's a man I'll call Bill who prayed, God, give me a challenge so big that I have to rely on you to do it. Foolish Bill. Silly man, right? So a little while later, a high school, he met a high school student who I'll call Tomas. And Tomas was brought here from another country. English was his second language. His family didn't have very much money, but he wanted to go to college. So Bill started to mentor him, tutor him, helped him in school, started a scholarship fund for him, raised enough for Tomas to go to college. Bill even drove him there to drop him off. And Bill said, when I said goodbye to him at his dorm, I did what every parent does when they drop their kids off at college. I cried all the way home to Issaquah, where I live. Bill is changing the world and getting so much out of it. Tons of data shows that when a caring adult enters a kid's life, as many of you do through Kid Reach or Jubilee Reach or Eastside Academy, when that happens, their grades improve, their test scores improve, and for many, that is a ticket out of poverty. Politics cannot do that. Only relationship can. It has political implications, but done in a third way. And many of you are doing things that are part of God's revival of all things. Keep it up, and if you don't know your place yet, keep asking God to show you and then step into it when he does. And politics won't depress you because you will be part of the solution rather than feeling like victims of the time. <clears throat> Which brings me to my last point, and my most important point, if you remember nothing else, remember this. Come November 9th, somebody is going to be president-elect, but whoever that is, Jesus will still be Lord. So that's the best news you're going to hear. So vote and vote your conscience, and let's do our best to hold politicians accountable to behaving well, but also know that no matter what, Jesus is still in control. If you've watched the movie The Imitation Game, you know that Alan Turing and a few people broke the German Enigma Code during World War II, which allowed them to know German plans and end the war much sooner. And they did it. He built a computer. But it needed some common German phrases that would appear in a lot of messages in order to be able to break the code. So the phrase they chose was Heil Hitler. That is a great example of how Jesus is Lord. Here's why. He has constructed the universe such that his moral laws cannot be disregarded forever. 
Hitler's arrogance insisted that every message heil him, which allowed Turing to break the code and win the war. Hitler was undone by his own evil. The wrong in this world will eventually come undone because that's how God designed this world. He is in charge. Pastor Tim, Tim Keller points out that at Jesus' trial, Pilate offers to release one of two prisoners, Jesus or a man named Barabbas, who is an anarchist who is trying to burn the whole system down. And the religious leaders chose Barabbas because for, for really good reason, because you can always defeat a revolutionary like Barabbas. It's easy to get rid of a revolutionary like Barabbas. Just roll your tanks in and into the neighborhood and kill them. But how do you stop a revolutionary like Jesus who died because he loves us? And then they sealed him in the grave and said, there's one social radical that will never bother us again. But Jesus pulled off the greatest political coup in history when he rose from the dead. How are you going to stop that? And his followers changed the world, not through political power, because they didn't have any. But because if you told them to be quiet, they kept spreading the message. Throw them in prison, and they'd convert the jailer. Whip them, and they'd start singing hymns. Starve them, they'd share what little they had with others. Hate them, they'd love you back, exclude them out, they'd invite you back in. Kill them, and a hundred more would rise up to take their place. What are you going to do with people like that? You can't stop them. It's just too contagious, too attractive. All political systems eventually fail. Pilate was very powerful in his day, but the only reason you know his name is because he executed a Jewish carpenter. Presidents come and presidents go, but the kingdom of God goes on and on and on. And if your primary citizenship is not in the United States, but in the kingdom of God, then you are part of the empire that never fails. That is our hope. Who was president? You can do that. That's okay. It's a Presbyterian amen, right? Who was president in 1853? Franklin Pierce. Democrat or Republican? Democrat. Okay, I know tons of presidential history. I still had to Google that. Okay, who was our 19th president? Rutherford B. Hayes. Who will be our 45th president? Who knows? Who cares? Because one day people will have to Google them to know who they are, just like I had to Google Rutherford B. Hayes. Right? And in his day, Hayes and I suppose even Franklin Pierce, they were very important. And there were people in our country who were just sure that it was the end of our country because they had been elected, and others were just sure our country had been saved. But now they're all just Google dust. Right? The best news you are going to hear this election appeared in the Seattle Times today. It is such good news, we reprinted it in our bulletin October 23rd, 2016. 2016 years since what? Millard Fillmore's election? Caesar's birthday? Uh-uh. Since a peasant was executed for sedition and blasphemy, but rose again showing that he is Lord and Bell Press come November 9th, he will still be Lord. He will still be making all things new. Not the Democrats, not the Republicans, not the President, Congress, or the Supreme Court. Jesus is Lord. So take heart. Have hope. Be of good cheer. You are part of the empire that never fails. So Jesus, your kingdom goes on and on, and Lord, make us citizens there first, and citizens of this country second. And Lord, give us your hope, and help us to spread your hope, because we know that you are Lord, and nothing can defeat your purposes in our life. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.